0: Time now to uh, learn a little bit more about free cash flow, value investing, and artificial intelligence. We have David Pearl. He is the co-chief investment officer of Epic Investment Partners, helping to manage more than $47 billion in a variety of uh, funds. And uh, I believe also, well, first, David, thanks very much for coming into the studio. Thanks for having Um, us. I just should mention overall, uh, TD Bank, I think, is the... Big parent company, is that correct? Yes. Okay, just so we set that stage. I I want you to offer this idea uh, and analyze it for us that free cash flow is a very important metric, a very important bit of information that may not be reflected necessarily in the earnings of a company. And I'm wondering if you could explain why that would be so
3: and why that is attractive. Right. Uh, When you make an investment in an equity, uh, you own a company. The company gives you your return through only three things. It generates profit, and that's where we're going to talk about free cash flow. It pays you back some of the money. That's return of capital, dividends and share buyback, and even debt pay down. And then valuation. And you know those three are the only determinants of return. Uh, the markets for the last five years up until this year were driven by PE expansion or valuation, not by the growth of profits, And only by a small amount, uh, and this is surprising to people, about dividends. Dividends have been 4% a year, but the markets were up double digits every year. So the rest of it was valuation. This has started to change now, and it is a profit-driven market, which is better for active managers. Because what we do is try to find the companies that are going to grow profits faster than their competitors and use the money more wisely, including share buyback or growing the dividend. And P.E. will be less of the metric that determines return going forward because as rates go up, valuations are liable to be flat or even down. But the good news is if the economy is growing, you're going to find earnings growth. Now, the difference between earnings and profits, this is the question. Accounting is a game. People think it's like physics. It's a law of nature. can't be changed. It's not. So as long as everyone plays by the same rules, you can compare company A to company B. Well, company A changes the rules every year. That's more than half the companies that are public don't use standard accounting. GE. <clears throat> uh, and many, many, many more. Uh And what they do is call it pro forma earnings, adjusted earnings, we call it earnings before expenses because they throw out anything they feel like and they change it every year. You can't compare even their own history anymore. Whereas cash, much harder to manipulate. You can sort of do it, but it's much harder. And if you've ever worked in a company as a treasurer or bookkeeper, companies run on cash. That's how you pay everyone's salary, pay the rent, build a factory. Once a quarter, they translate from cash to this game of accounting and earnings. So companies say, we're going to do a dollar, and everyone's happy if they do a dollar or five, and they don't care
1: how it happened. Okay, so so cash is the dependable metric to look at on balance sheets. I want to get to the point that you made saying that active management will be increasing really relevant going forward. Not everybody agrees with you. Uh, Certainly investors have been voting with their money and pouring into index funds. David Einhorn, uh, who is the uh, founder of Greenlight Capital, said earlier this year, value investing may be dead and Amazon and Tesla killed it. Uh, Meanwhile, you have, for example, mainstay Epoch uh, Global Equity Yield Fund, which is a fund that is co-managed by your uh, your firm, and it has an expense ratio of uh, you know 086 percent, which is a pretty significant one. And how I mean, are, are investors buying what you're saying?
3: Yeah, uh, again, during the period of quantitative easing over the last five years, returns were driven by valuation. And that is hard for most active managers, because what we're trying to do is find a company that's going to grow faster, grow earnings faster, be at a discounted valuation. And what was happening is the whole boat, the tide was lifting all the boats. And index funds were actually making it worse because they're market cap weighted. So they're buying the largest stocks, which looked more and more overvalued. And the last thing that happened, the perfect storm, was that When you bring rates to zero, people who would have kept their money in the bank or in bonds were forced to buy equities, and they only wanted equities that acted like bonds that paid big dividends, which happened to be the largest ones. So managers who are looking for the better stocks were under-owning the biggest names, which kept getting bigger and bigger. Now what's changed is rates are beginning to go up. That is putting a crimp on PE expansion. Correlations, if you look at the market this year, correlations have really widened, meaning that you know the difference between a good stock and a bad stock is a big difference. Stock picking can work this year, and actually active managers are beginning to outperform this year. This has been clearly a better year, and I would have used the word frustrating over the last few years because stocks that I thought were overvalued take a utility or you know, it has a 4% dividend, but can't really beat anyone's number, it's regulated, went to all-time highs. And they were trading at a huge premium to a market that had gone from 12 times earnings to 19. Utilities were at 25. Yeah. So, So it was a terrible environment for stock picking. We're finally moving to one where your return is going to be determined by earnings, or in our case, free cash flow yeah. and the return of capital.
1: David Pearl, thank you so much for joining us. David Pearl, Co-Chief Investment Officer of Epoch Investment Partners, which oversees $47.2 billion. The rise in Amazon's market cap this year alone is bigger than the combined total market values of virtually every familiar chain that is to be found in U.S. malls. Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon.com, his wealth surged past $100 billion on Friday as Amazon.com Benefited yet again from another shopping holiday, this time Black Friday. Today is Cyber Monday. Here to talk about the implications of the rapid rise of these big tech companies and uh, the possibility or uh, sort of rationale behind breaking them up is Stephen Strauss. He is the John Weinberg Goldman Sachs visiting professor at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. Uh, he is joining us from our Boston studio today. Uh, Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. I, I just want to get, first of all, your take. Do you think that there is a sufficient rationale for breaking up companies like Amazon.com?
2: Um, I think there's a sufficient rationale to look at what needs to be done about them. Um, Amazon, Alphabet, which is apparent to Google, Apple, Facebook—they basically have a few things in common. They are all in high fixed cost businesses. If you want to go after, you know, Facebook or Google, you're literally talking about spending billions. Um, I think. Uh, when Microsoft wanted to enter search, it was a $5 billion fixed cost investment up front. These are businesses with very low marginal costs. I mean, the actual cost when you log into Facebook or use, um, you know, Alphabet or even Amazon is almost nothing to the company. It's just server time. So there's very low marginal costs. And there's network effects. Um, you know, you want to be part of a community. You want to share on Facebook. Uh, because that's where other people are sharing. And all of these companies have, to varying degrees, those three characteristics. And those are the classic recipe for a monopoly or an oligopoly. And it's not just their size and profitability. I mean, Google has about around a 70% share of the search market. Um, Amazon, 50% of the incremental sales growth each year in online sales goes to Amazon. They've also got something like a 70% by revenues, uh, share of the e-book sales market, and so on for this group. So, you know, the classic recipe for dealing with that is break it up, regulate it as a platform, or in some way force a level playing field. Exactly what the mix of solutions uh, is or how it should be approached, I'm not as sure, but it certainly needs to be, you know, focus of legislation, a focus of regulatory work.
0: Professor Strauss, I'm just going to throw a couple of legal uh, statutes at you: the Interstate Commerce Act, the Sherman Antitrust Act, the uh, Clayton Antitrust Act, Robinson-Patman, Seller-Kefaver. We have a lot of laws uh, that deal with antitrust situations, and I'm wondering: do you believe that the laws as they exist uh, offer the government the power and authority to do whatever it is you might suggest, or? Uh, alleviate the situation or is it something in the legal framework that needs to
2: be changed um I, i'm almost well first among my i have a number of different qualifications and degrees but, how, but however but you're not, not a lawyer, lawyer ter- right okay, <laughs> okay. let me just give you more of a you know a public policy person's perspective there's probably going to be a need for new legislation or at least new ways of thinking about this the current classic view of antitrust in the US is So long as sort of in the short to intermediate term the consumer is benefiting, the antitrust authorities don't really get involved. And since most of these services are offering things to the public for free or at very low prices, um, there isn't that much of an interest. Now, again, you get into the question of what is the public, who is benefiting. Uh, If you look at the media landscape, for example, there's a fairly strong argument that, you know, Facebook, Google, et cetera, ability to distribute news media and content online, um, that basically they're diverting advertising revenues that were used to be going to newspapers, used to be going to news media to themselves. That's probably one avenue for an antitrust approach saying, you know, this this other industry is being damaged. Uh, there's already been one successful case of litigation. Um, it was, I believe, Apple and Google had entered into a collusive agreement to try and depress wages in Silicon Valley, that they'd agreed not to poach each other. And they were challenged by that already on the Justice Department, by the Justice Department had to settle. In Europe, Google has paid about $2.4 billion in an antitrust um, challenge. So there are certainly things you can do under the existing frameworks, but I wouldn't be surprised if new free- frameworks needed to be developed.
1: Stephen, have you any, had any conversations with uh, public policymakers? About this
2: Um, issue, yes. I mean, I'm not. I'm not completely sure. I want to say who or or what. um, I mean, yeah. I mean,
1: my 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 point is, I I mean, is this something that policymakers are actively thinking about, or is this something that uh, people sort of nervously whisper to one another if they're invested (laughs) in these companies, and uh, sort of you know argue if they're investors in the brick and mortar companies.
2: Uh, someplace in between would be my answer. I mean, one of the problems, I mean, we could go off on a whole different discussion about dysfunction in Congress, but one of the challenges you've currently got at this point, I would say, is a bit of overload in Washington, D.C., and just getting people's bandwidth. Uh, well, I'm sure you're aware FCC has come out with or is trying to come out with new rules doing away with net neutrality. You know, we could have a separate debate on whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, but that's absorbing a huge amount of bandwidth. Uh, just in terms of people's ability to think about issues, you know, more generally, you've got uh, you know very substantial changes being proposed to the tax code. So, yes, this is on people's radar screens. I mean, certainly, right. it's there, but you know, to the extent that you want to get anyone in Congress to think about it, you know, there are twenty-seven other crises right. at the moment which are ahead of it. Right. Uh, What's the expression? The uh, the urgent crowds out the important.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, I guess that the the next question is: Is there a point of no return? I mean, is there some kind of urgency to this matter, or is it just sort of hanging out there as something to address at some point, someday, maybe?
2: Uh, I'm not a believer that much in the idea to get to points of no return. Um, I mean, the uh, and by the way, an interesting analog is sort of the late '70s and early '80s. A number of factors came together. IBM was challenged as a monopoly uh, in the sale of mainframe computers. AT&T was broken up. And, you know, the at and monopoly had lasted, you know, quasi-monopoly had lasted 70 or 80 years. Uh, so it may be a while before this hits, you know, the boiling point and people focus. Uh, may not, and I just flag that, you know, one of the advantages to breaking up these companies is it may stimulate a lot of entrepreneurship, a lot of opportunities. I mean, one of the issues at this point with, you know, Facebook or Google or, you know, Amazon is the extent that you try to challenge them. If you're a tech entrepreneur, you are at a real risk that if you don't sell out to them, uh, they're simply going to drive you out of business because, you know, they have enough money to undercut and oversp- and outspend just about any competitor.
0: Thanks very much for joining us. Stephen Strauss is the uh, John Weinberg Goldman Sachs Visiting Professor at the Woodrow Wilson School of International Affairs and Public Policy at Princeton University.
1: Well, the Bitcoin curve has just gone vertical. Bitcoin uh, up almost 17% just so far today. Here to talk about what it is that we're seeing here is Chris Berniski, partner at Placeholder and advisor to ARK Investment Management, also author of a newly out book, Crypto Assets, the Innovative Investors Guide to Bitcoin and Beyond. Chris, thank you so much for joining us. I want to just start by asking, what are we seeing right now with respect to the action in Bitcoin? Is this mass speculation or real money flowing into the asset class?
4: Well, we're definitely seeing a lot of activity. And I think to quantify that activity, it's best to look at uh, how much new fiat currency is flowing into the Bitcoin ecosystem versus how much is the network value, uh, which, which many people think of as the market capitalization is increasing. So we know over the last month, Bitcoin has appreciated roughly 60 billion in total value. So a month ago, it was at 100 billion. And today it's around $160 billion. Uh, So then we have to ask, well, how, how much of that is, is new dollars? And so if we look at Coinbase, one of the largest retail platforms where uh, people can buy new Bitcoin, they're adding roughly 125,000 new users a day. Uh, if you assume you know, that's one-fourth of the global totals, then we would have roughly 500,000 new Bitcoin users a day. And if we assume they buy roughly, say, 100,000 per new user, then over 30 days, that would suggest 15 billion new dollars have entered the Bitcoin ecosystem over the last uh, 30 days. And that doesn't even account for institutional.
0: Uh, Chris, uh, it's always good to, to speak with you. And I just want to reference your book, Crypto Assets, the Innovator, uh, Innovative uh, Investor's Guide to uh, Bitcoin and Beyond. Because if you look on Amazon, it says, on the one hand, it's temporarily out of stock. Yet, if you want the hardcover, it'll cost you 25 The Kindle version is 15 You can get a collectible version of the book for over $1,000. My point being that you have all of these different suppliers offering a product at various prices. Is that similar to what Bitcoin could experience? Because if you don't have any central clearing, how do you know or how does any buyer know that the person that just sold you the asset will buy it back for a similar price?
4: Well, it's interesting you mentioned the book because there has been an aftermarket for it, um, which is interesting. in In and of itself, it shows there's a Uh, Definitely a thirst for knowledge. In terms of the Bitcoin markets, you know, there are... You can think of the different exchanges as somewhat isolated liquidity pools, um, but if you if you look globally, um, because you know there are over 50 exchanges globally that trade 24/7, 365 days a year, um, there are some arbitrage some some arbitrage opportunities. But as more and more professional market makers come in, we're seeing some of those opportunities get squashed. So I would I would think of it as um, still a somewhat immature market, but we're definitely seeing a tightening. Of the spreads across all the different exchanges.
1: So, what could happen to sort of puncture this rally, considering the fact that so many people are calling it a massive bubble?
4: I think that, um, you know, there's, there's any number of things that could happen. Um, and learning from, from the past, you know, in late 2013, we, we also had a, a similar ascent. That was the first time Bitcoin crossed $1,000. Um, following that ascent, There was a big hack uh, on an exchange called Mt. Gox, which had nothing to do with the underlying Bitcoin protocol. That wasn't compromised. It was just a poorly run exchange that was compromised. That threw people off. Um, At that time, there was also commentary from from China um, around Bitcoin not being a real currency with real meaning. In in 2017, you know, we've seen different scares. We've seen a few small hacks. We've seen China. Uh, come in with new commentary around its regulation and banning ICOs. And while that has temporarily dampened Bitcoin's ascent, it has uh, recovered, which shows stronger hands. So right now, it's an extremely strong bull market. Um, I, I can't say for sure what, what would stop this, um, but we do have a few things to learn from in the past.
0: All right, let's just talk about short term. If you're an investor or speculator that is long any kind of Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and you've got a significant gain, would you sell it?
4: So I don't give public investment advice. It's uh, it's a very tricky thing to do in in the Bitcoin space. I definitely think people need to um, exercise caution in these markets. You know, over the last 24 hours, we've traded over six billion dollars in the Bitcoin markets, which is about um, three three x what we've seen as the average over the last 50 days. So things are are getting hot. Um, you know. If if you're entering the market, always good to average in, Um, and it really depends on on what your risk profile is in terms of um, if you're a holder or seller uh, right now.
1: Chris, real quick, are there more uh, retail establishments actually accepting Bitcoin as currency?
4: There was a famous article that came out this year that actually showed uh, fewer merchants were accepting Bitcoin um, this year than than the year past, I believe it was. Um, So we're we're not seeing um, B2B or c to b use increase, so merchants. We're more seeing b to b and you can track that through um, Bitcoin's uh, transaction volume, on-chain transaction volume, which is um, right around $2 billion right now or $1.5 million a minute. So that's using Bitcoin as a means of exchange, which is very different from the trading volume we see.
0: Thank you very much for being with us. Uh, Chris Berniski is a partner and uh, at Placeholder and Advisor to ARC Investment Management, and he is the author, co author of Crypto Assets The Innovative Investor's Guide to Bitcoin and Beyond. The shares of Time Incorporated. They are higher right now by a little bit more than 9% after a deal has been announced that uh, Meredith Corporation would like to buy Time Inc along with the financial backing from the Koch brothers. Here to help us understand why this is taking place and the price implications is our media and entertainment guru, Porter Bibb of MediaTek Capital Partners. Porter, so uh, go ahead, answer your own question. How does Meredith justify A forty-six percent premium for Time. This is their. What is this? This Is like the lucky charm, right? The third time is the prize.
5: That's exactly right. And um, they 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 think that they're going to be able to save nearly a half a billion dollars in operating expenses and overhead by combining Time Inc. with their existing publications. But the the key here is uh, twofold. One, the Koch brothers. I put a half a billion dollars into this deal, they're ostensibly not going to interfere with editorial. They're also not taking a board position on, on Meredith. However, no one has said uh, in the Koch camp that Koch, at some point, if Meredith can't make a go of, of Time Magazine or Fortune or any of the other key titles, that the Cokes won't be able to buy those from Meredith. The interesting thing that Meredith is is is, uh, positing right now is the fact that they're the seventh largest digital publisher in the country, maybe maybe even in the world, Uh, and that's the future of of print. Even though there there are now seven hundred magazine publishing companies in the United States, almost uh, 80%, maybe, maybe significantly more, is controlled by just four companies. It'll be Meredith, Hearst, Condy Nast, and American Media. And the value of, of pure print standalone magazines is plummeting. Time Inc., for example, lost $2 billion in revenue for the first nine months of this year. Uh, Meredith is hanging uh, a, a lot better in terms of the print side, but they are really doing a good job on monetizing the digital assets. Yeah. Uh, go ahead.
1: Well, well Porter, I, I guess that what uh, the, the backdrop that you're painting of an industry in decline, which we know the magazine industry is, what would the Koch brothers' motivation be to get into this? I mean, obviously, there's been quite a bit of speculation that they uh, have political interests in controlling these magazines, although they've said that they won't necessarily exert editorial control. So, if that's not what they're doing, what are they trying to do?
5: Well, <laughs> one of the hidden assets of, of Time Inc. is uh, its database of uh, consumer information. They have Tens, maybe even hundreds of millions of names and, and customer and consumer profiles uh, on, on their database. And that really fits right into what the Cokes are doing in terms of their own uh, political uh, uh, persuasion in terms of, of media uh, analyzing and, and adding the timing. Uh, customer base to their own existing database is a very, very valuable political asset. And no one at Meredith or Coke has said we're not going to touch the the database. There there are some other significant assets that I don't think uh, interest the Cokes, but the archives of, of Time Inc. are uh, very very valuable. They all of the in, including magazines that they no longer publish, like Life magazine. Uh, they also have a very prosperous to- uh, conference business uh, with Fortune magazine and a huge consumer um, uh, aspect in the whole Sports Illustrated swimsuit uh, concept that they have turned into a very, very valuable franchise. And, and it's mostly all digital these days.
0: So, Porter, would uh, the archives, for example, they could even almost be a standalone business such as uh, Shutterstock, right? A commercial Absolutely. digital image business.
5: It, they. Time, Inc. has one of the largest photo uh, files and archives uh, in the world, Uh, going back uh, to 1923 when Henry Luce and Britton Haddon founded uh, Time magazine. and, And all of the fabulous pictures that they got from Life, from Sports Illustrated, and from Time, as well as their dozens of other magazines, create a very very valuable digital asset
0: okay so is it possible to actually borrow or use that digital asset as collateral for even more borrowing and more money
5: well according to uh statements that the meredith management has said they could not do this deal without coke's money because no banks and 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 no uh Private equity lending funds would would believe that uh, Meredith is going to be able to turn a profit in this deal and, and pay back any money. So the 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 uh, funds that that Koch has provided, um, Coke actually made a statement this morning and said we're acting like a bank and and technically they're they're lending a half a billion dollars to Meredith to make this deal happen. Interesting. Um, Meredith is right about the savings that they think uh, the combined entities will will generate. Yeah, uh, they'll they'll save almost as much as the cokes are investing in the deal.
1: Porter Bibb, thank you so much for joining us. Porter Bibb, managing partner of Media Tech Capital Partners, also the first publisher of Rolling Stone magazine.